Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 28. Every, every first Sunday of the month, we take a psalm one at a time and go through them in order. And we're up to Psalm 28. Uh, I practically say this to myself every month, that my favorite psalm is whatever the next one is I'm preaching on. And that uh, has turned out to be the case in this particular uh, event as well. And I'll ask that you, to, if you're able to, to stand for the reading of God's word here this morning. Psalm 28. Give ear to the reading of God's word. Of David, to you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the end, uh, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas, for mercy, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for giving us your word. And we know that uh, man does not live by bread alone. We do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, Psalm 28, as you've just heard and read along with me, is a, it's basically a prayer, isn't it? Most of it is a, is a prayer, a prayer of David. In verse 1, he says, To you, O Lord, I call. So he's addressing this to the Lord. But Psalm 28, if you were listening, it's not your typical, your usual calm, collected, and even it's not even your usually dignified, if you want to use that kind of a term, prayer that you and I are most... Uh, likely accustomed to praying, those are the kinds of prayers that we're used to praying, whether it be on our own, you know, privately, whether certainly whether it's in church, here corporately, that's the kind of prayer we're usually accustomed to praying is that calm, collected, uh, kind of dignified prayer. But the word for call here in verse 1 where David says, to you, O Lord, I call, it could actually be translated as cry out. David is in a sense saying, it's to you, Lord, not just to you I pray, but it's to you I cry out. It's a, it's a cry of desperation. This is a prayer of desperation to his Lord. This is a little bit more clear when you read the rest of verse 1 when he says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. This is a cry of desperation. To David, the idea that his God, who is his rock, was somehow turning a deaf ear to him in his time of need was more than he could bear. 
That's the picture that David's painting for us here. It's, it's David's in a time of, of almost panic, of, of need. And he fe- it feels like God is turning a deaf ear to him. To David, the thought that his God was silent to him was a fate worse than death itself. If God was not going to answer David's prayers, his repeated prayers, we assume, David, to him, he says he might as well be dead. He might as well become like those who go down to the pit. Going down to the pit is a a picture of death. It's a picture of someone dying. Well, have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever prayed not the calm, collected, dignified uh, prayer, orderly prayer? You know, Presbyterians like to do everything decently and in good order. Have you ever prayed kind of a desperate cry out to God in prayer? When was the last time that you cried out to God in desperation as if you're, you, you could not bear to go on if God did not answer you? You probably have prayed that way on a number of occasions. Have you ever felt like that when you were praying? Have you ever felt in anguish because it seemed like God wasn't listening to your prayers? Have you ever wondered if God had forsaken you? You know, we know the scriptures in more, more places than one, that, that God promises to us. God doesn't have to promise anything. God's, you know, we, we say our word is our bond, or it should be. You know, our yes should be yes, our no should be no. Well, God's yes is his yes. His no is his no. He doesn't have to promise anything. If he tells you he's going to do something, that's as good as a promise. But he promises us things. He swears an oath to us. He's, he makes covenant with us to assure us of things. But God's word promises us in Matthew 28 and elsewhere that he's always with us even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. He tells us that because he knows that we are a fearful bunch. Well, Even though we know those promises are true, we know them in our heads. We're familiar with them at times. Have you ever felt like still somehow that God may have abandoned you? We know he doesn't do that, but have you ever felt like he did, as if he did abandon you? Well, I hope you realize from our reading of this psalm, Psalm 28 this morning, that, that even King David himself, you know, the one who's the man after God's own heart, uh, the Lord's anointed king, the one who was the, the foreshadowing of, his, of the son of David, Jesus Christ, even he felt that way at times. He wrote about it in this psalm and elsewhere As well, so if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever ever felt that you've been abandoned by God, if you after you've come to Christ, uh, you're in pretty distinguished company. King David felt that way, and he wrote this psalm so you wouldn't think that you were alone in that regard. So take heart this morning, take encouragement from this psalm. Uh, For this great psalm of David, what does it do? It points us back. uh, It points to the way back for each one of us. It points the way back to assurance in the midst of trials. It points us back to praying confidently, knowing that no matter how we feel or how things may look, that our God does hear us. And it points us back to to the way of, of being able to praise God for his mercy and help and blessing his holy name, as David does in Psalm 20. We're going to look at three things, at least this morning, from the psalm. We're going to look at first David's pleas, for mercy, his pleading for God's mercy. We're going to see, secondly, David's pleas, his pleading for justice. And then we're going to see David's praise for God's mercy in answer to that, to that prayer. So the first thing is David's pleas or pleading for God's mercy. It's found in verses 1 through 3. 
There David says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. You know, to the genuine Christian for whom prayer is his or her lifeblood, you know, the idea that God might not be listening is unbearable. It's unbearable. To the true believer in Christ who cannot help but seek God's face in prayer, the silence of God is torture when you don't feel like God is is answering. Now, to the man whose praying is merely formal, who goes through the motions with very little expectation of God's answer, very even less watchfulness of God answering his prayers, David's prayer here in verses 1 through 3 sounds like gibberish. It's an entirely foreign concept to such a, a man. You know, the, the believer wrestles with God in prayer. Have you found that out to be true in your own life? The believer at times wrestles with God in prayer. You know, the way that Jacob wrestled with the Lord at Peniel in Genesis chapter 32. What, what does it say he did there? He clung to him with all of his might and said to him, I will not let you go unless you do what? Unless you bless me. I'm not letting go. You know, in this mysterious figure, this prefigurement of the incarnation of Christ or the angel of the Lord, whatever the case may be. Remember, he took, he took his hip and, and put it out of socket, and he still didn't give up. And what does it say? That he wrestled with God and prevailed. That's what the scripture says about, about him at that time, about Jacob. Well, do you wrestle with God sometimes in prayer? If you do, take heart. For only the redeemed pray that way. Only God's people truly wrestle with God in prayer. It's not a sign of God having cast you aside, as you might sometimes be tempted to think. Rather, it's, it's proof that he has not. Our wrestlings with God in prayer show that God has not cast us off. The man of formal, dead religion never wrestles with God in prayer. It doesn't happen. It's foreign to him. Uh, but the person whose prayers are formal, they don't wrestle. They give up at the first sign of, of God not answering. The first sign of delay or difficulty, such a man ceases to pray altogether. And look at the subject of David's prayer in verses 1 through 3. What is he asking him for in verse 2 there? The mercy and the help of God. He asked God to show Uh, to hear the voice of his pleas for mercy or his cries for help. The Lord was his rock, verse 1, David says. And it was to his rock that he went for mercy and help in time of need. If King David himself needed to do that in prayer, how much more should we do the same? If the king of Israel, God's anointed king, didn't just pray as if he was snapping his fingers and giving God an order, but wrestled with God in prayer and sometimes felt as if God wasn't hearing and wasn't answering. And how much more should we take heart and be willing to do the same? And what, on what basis did David do this? On what, day, on what basis did David go to the Lord in prayer this way and wrestle with him and ask him 
to answer him. Think about that. Did he plead with God on the basis of his own righteousness? Did he plead with God as if somehow he felt that he deserved God's help or was worthy of having his prayer answered? Did he even plead with the Lord on the basis of him being God's God's king? Did he plead his own status? Hey God, I'm your anointed king, remember? Because I'm your king, therefore answer my prayers. No, he didn't pray that way at all here, does he? That's not, he doesn't come to God on the basis of his own merits, his own righteousness, his own status, even the status God had bestowed upon him as the king. No, in verse 2 he says that he lifted up his hands toward what? Toward the Lord's most holy sanctuary. It's a difficult phrase to translate, but it, it has the idea of the most holy place, the innermost place of God's tabernacle or temple. And where is that? What, what happens there once a year? That's the place where the blood of the sacrifice was, was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Day of the Atonement in Leviticus 16. So what's David doing? On what basis does David plead for God's mercy and his help? He pleaded with God for mercy and help only on the basis of God's appointed sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God. The same as you and I do. On God's own sacrifice, what we're going to celebrate at the table here, that's the basis that David went to the Lord in prayer for. It's the same way that we go and we too approach our God in prayer. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and in his holy name alone is how we can pray and plead with God. We plead with God in prayer on the basis of Jesus and his righteousness alone and not our own. We pray in Jesus' name for that reason. It's a reminder of the only real basis that we have a right to pray to God at all is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, what's the second thing that David prays here, that David pleads with God for? The first one we get, he pleads and pleads for mercy and for help. But he also pleads with God in verses 4 to 5 for justice. For justice. In verse 3, David just prayed that the Lord would not drag him off along with the wicked and with the workers of evil. Well, now in verses 4 to 5, he turns his attention to the wicked and the workers of evil and pleads with God for his justice against them. And this shouldn't be a big surprise. For many times, God's justice is the flip side of his mercy to his people, isn't it? When God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, there was mercy to Israel. And that mercy to Israel came through God's justice and his judgment upon Egypt. The two aren't so separate. They go uh, very often together. In verses 4 to 5, David says this, Give to them, the wicked, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render to them, render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Notice there's the work of the hands of the wicked. And why is that? They don't give regard to the work of the Lord's hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Now this is a prayer of imprecation. That's a word we probably don't use very often. It's a prayer of imprecation against God's enemies and against the enemies of his people. What is imprecation? Imprecation or imprecatory praying, is basically praying for God's justice and just judgment upon his enemies. That's what imprecation 
is that many in the church today are, are more than a little bit uncomfortable with this concept, with this idea of imprecatory prayers, no less than Charles Spurgeon, whom you've heard me quote and will hear me again quote, uh, said that the psalmist's desires here, that David's desires here in this psalm, quote, are not readily made consistent with the spirit of the Christian dispensation, uh, which seeks rather the reformation than the punishment of sinners. In other words, it's hard to understand how this fits at times. It, we have to admit, when we read these, these things, and they, and they happen, as we're going to see throughout the Psalter, this isn't an isolated thing. It happens a lot in the Psalms. It does kind of make us take a step back and say, oh, you know, okay, how, how am I supposed to pray this? How am I supposed to pray this way? Even in Reformed circles, some say that imprecatory prayers are not for us in the New Testament age. One, one notable author goes so far as to say that the imprecatory Psalms themselves, such as this one, quote, are entirely out of place on the lips of, of Christians today. Is that, is that kind of thinking correct? Well, before you answer that in the affirmative too quickly, take note that if you think that way, you'll be whittling down your Psalter quite a bit. There are quite a few Psalms that have these kinds of prayers contained within them. One commentator notes that many of the lament Psalms, and there are more lament Psalms than there are Psalms of joy in the Psalter. I don't know if you know that. When you read through the 150 psalms that are in your Bibles, sometime if you have time, kind of count how many of them are the joyful, happy, praise-filled ones and how many of them are laments. There are far more laments than there are in the psalms of praise. But he he says that many of the lament psalms uh, include an imprecatory prayer. And he lists in that commentary at least 17 of them. And it wasn't meant to be an exhaustive list. It certainly was not a complete list. Well, are we to approach the Psalms in such a way as if we were trying to decipher what is or is not proper for us to recite or sing or pray in public or private worship? Is that really how we're supposed to approach this altar? Are you supposed to read through them and say, well, this one, okay, this one's for today. You know, he loves me, he loves me not. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. This one's for today, this one's not. Is that how you're supposed to approach the Psalter? I would say... I would say no. Are the imprecatory psalms, as this one happens to be, are they there rather to teach us how to pray in this day and age as well? And I would say to you that yes, they, they are. They have something to teach us, which all those authors I think would agree with. They wouldn't say those psalms don't teach us anything. But all these psalms teach us how to pray in time of distress and even in time of persecution. What were the apostles, for example, praying? In the New, I'm sticking to the New Testament here for, for reasons I hope are obvious. In Acts 49, remember the chief priests and the elders arrested them and threatened them against speaking the name of Jesus. And they, of course, said to them, it's better to obey God than man. Well, they prayed. In Acts 4.29, they prayed and they said this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, they were certainly praying for boldness. That seems to be the main part of the prayer. In other words, they're saying, we're being threatened. We're not the mighty people. We're just, we're the apostles, but we're not unthreatenable. We're not unshakable when we're threatened. And so they prayed for boldness. But what, what were they saying when they said to the Lord, 
Look upon their threats. What is the implication of that prayer? What are they asking God to do? Did God not know they were threatened? Are they informing God somehow that, oh, oh, I didn't realize you were being threatened. Excuse me, I don't know what I was thinking. No, they're saying, God, defend your church. Defend your church. What? They're saying, we don't defend ourselves. We don't do like Peter did you know, in the garden, whip out a sword and start defending ourselves and overthrowing the authorities. They, they look to the Lord to defend his church, his apostles, the preaching of his, of his gospel. You know, the apostles didn't threaten in return, as we are tempted to do. They didn't rage against them in return. They didn't seek vengeance against them in return. They prayed for the Lord's just judgment against his enemies and his protecting of his people. What about the Apostle Paul? What about the Apostle Paul? You know, we went through Galatians uh, years ago here. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, twice in those two verses, Paul Uh, calls for something. He calls for those who preached a false gospel to be, quote, accursed. Accursed. What was he saying? He wasn't saying, I hope they have a bad day. He wasn't saying, I hope they get a flat tire on their way to work or that their bank account, you know, they go broke. He's praying for God's condemnation of them. If anyone, if we or an angel from heaven were to preach to you a gospel other than what we've preached to you, Let him be what? Accursed, cut off from God. He's talking about hell there. And he says it twice. And if you remember the book of Galatians, it's pretty clear this wasn't a hypothetical. There were people preaching a false gospel in Galatia. Paul tells them he was, I'm paraphrasing, but he marveled that they turned aside so quickly from the true gospel to that which is not a gospel at all. And his opinion of those Preachers is pretty clear, and, and what he prayed, in a sense, for them or against them uh, was nothing other than being accursed. In, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 to 15, he says this to Timothy Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Deeds. Now, if you noticed, that's the same wording that's found in our psalm. It's the same kind of thing that the psalmist actually requested God to do. Repay them according to. He uses that phrase three times in our psalm, the phrase according to. He prays that God would repay them according to what they had done. So he's asking for justice, much like the woman in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 who went to the unjust judge. Remember the story, this woman, this this widow, who goes to the unjust judge who feared neither God nor man. You know, it says it twice. Even the judge goes, even though I don't fear God or man, yet because this woman's wearing me out, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm going to give her justice. You know, I'm going to give her justice. She, She went to him over and over again, asking for the word is justice against her adversary. Verse 3 of Luke 18. That judge, though he didn't fear God or man, verse 4, gave her justice just so that he would quit, she would quit bothering him. In verses 7 through 8, Jesus says this, And will not God give what? Justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? God will give his elect justice who cry to him day and night. It sounds a lot like Psalm 28. They cry out to him. They don't just pray it once calmly and leave it go. They're, they're, they're imploring God. They're pleading with God and they're pleading with him for justice. For justice. Do we pray for justice that way? Do we pray for justice at all? Well, I think we should. In fact, verse 1 of that passage in Luke 18, what's the purpose of that parable? Because it tells us there. It says that, that Jesus told that parable, the reason was to teach us, quote, that we, always ought, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. That we persevere in praying. And even in persevering in praying, among other things, but specifically for justice. For justice against, you'd have to say, against our adversaries. Last but not least, the martyred saints in heaven. We've mentioned Revelation already this morning. Revelation 6.10, it says this, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on these who dwell on the earth? This is the cry of martyrs in heaven. No longer with any mix of sin in their prayers or their desires, and yet what do they pray? How long, O Lord? They weren't embarrassed about the idea of God's just judgment. They, didn't, they weren't embarrassed as if God was somehow to be ashamed of his justice or his judgment or his, his condemnation of, of, of the wicked. And how did God answer their prayer? Did God say, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong, guys. Come on, you got it easy. Now you're in heaven. What are you saying? No, he told them to rest and to wait. And that chapter ends with the wicked calling on the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them and hide them. And hide them from what? The phrase is to hide them from, quote, the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 16, the wrath of the Lamb. It's an amazing phrase to think about. Uh, in his, his commenting on the imprecation here in Psalm 28, Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, he writes this, This is not the language of passion or revenge, nor is it inconsistent with the duty of praying for our enemies. It's not the language of passion or revenge. It's not inconsistent with the duty of praying for our enemies. Are we to love and pray for our enemies? Yes, we are. Certainly. Is that only a New Testament ideal? Did the New Testament suddenly change gears and say, you know, in the Old Testament you were to hate and destroy your enemies, but now, now you're to love them and pray for them? No. We don't have two Bibles. We have one. And that's not just a New Testament uh, invention that was also in the Old Testament as well. And let that sink in for a moment. And note the distinction that Matthew Henry in this, his commentary makes between praying with the spirit of revenge and that of praying with the spirit in mind of God's justice. David in Psalm 28, in this imprecatory prayer in the middle of the psalm, is not praying with an attitude of hatred or rage against someone for a personal offense of some kind done to him by his enemies. He's not praying that God would be his own personal attack dog. It's not what he's praying at all. He's praying for God's cause, not his own cause. You know, if, if that's what we conceive of when we think of imprecatory prayer, uh, then maybe we'd be right to reject the idea of imprecation altogether. But that's not what David is doing here. Uh, that's not the biblical idea of imprecation. In fact, it should be noted that what's, what, there's actually a benefit 
of, of imprecatory prayer, a safeguard of, of, of biblical imprecatory praying, and that is that it precludes the whole idea of revenge altogether. If our imprecatory praying sounds a lot like praying for revenge, we're praying it wrong. That is not biblical imprecation at all. You know, perhaps those who are against imprecatory praying have that in mind as their target when they talk about it, and if that's the case, that might explain their arguing against it. But instead of seeking revenge, we are to take our concerns to the Lord. Instead of asking God to, to swat a fly with a sledgehammer, as we are tempted to do, as, you know, we this morning mentioned the idea of the disciples to, you know, asking God, shall we call fire down from heaven against our enemies? And Jesus said, cool your jets, you know, hold on there, fellow, you know, hold your horses. Uh, that wasn't the thing, because what we think is just often isn't. What we would, would mete out in punishment for sins against us, uh, so-called, isn't always or often just. You know, we ask God for whatever he determines to be just and right. It's God's just judgment that we are to trust in and ask for. His justice that we are to pray for, not our own. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things. We don't know what's right. We don't know what God's judgment should be. But we know that he, the judge of the earth, shall do right. He does all things well. Notice also that David not only prays for justice, but he assures us of the reality of God's just judgment, which is sure to come. In verse 5 he says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. He doesn't just pray for justice. He assures us in this psalm that it is going to happen. God's justice is sure to come. The day of judgment is most certainly coming. For some, that day will be sooner than others. But it is really not that far off for any of God's enemies. The enemies of his church that seem so strong today, their judgment is not far off. No matter who they may be, no matter how powerful they may be in the eyes of of the world, and why is it? Why is that judgment not far off? He says there, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Because they don't regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down one day and not build them up again. It's God's works that we should be taking notice of, and the wicked ignore those to their own destruction. So if you're not right with God this morning, if you are somehow yet his still his enemy who works evil, and as our text says, speaks peace to your neighbor while you harbor evil in your heart against them. This morning I would tell you to turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ by faith, flee the wrath that is to come, trust in Christ and his death for your sins in your place, and you will no longer need to fear the wrath of a holy God. And why is that? Because Christ has taken his wrath fully in your place if you trust in him. If you're a believer in Christ this morning and you're suffering, many around the world and even here in our town are today, you're suffering evil at the hands of the enemies of God in some way or from even the hypocrites that David speaks of in our text, those who speak peace and have evil in their hearts. Uh, there's no need to seek revenge. You can take heart. You don't have to fret. Take it to the Lord in prayer as David does here in Psalm 28, pray for mercy, pray for help, pray for his justice, his justice, in his time and in his way, and know that he will surely give it. He will give justice, as Jesus himself said, 
to those who pray to him day and night, asking for it. Suffering saints who face martyrdom and suffering like that for the faith, they don't look at imprecatory psalms and prayers like this and scratch their heads, do they? They don't scratch their heads at this at all. They understand it just fine. They sing them and they pray them, and I think we should do well to do the same also. What's the last thing in our text? The last thing is David's praise. First, he pleads with God for mercy and for help, and he pleads with God for justice, and then he praises God for giving those things to him. Uh, In verses 6 through 9, he says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. It's quite a, quite a change of tune from the first three verses, isn't it? Even the first five verses. David wrestled with God in prayer, and now he knows that he has not been abandoned by his God. Now he has retuned his heart to sing the praises of his Lord and God again, he's come full circle. Remember in the first, first couple of verses there in verse 2, and he wondered if God heard him. He pleaded with him, quote, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. And he wondered if God heard. Well, what does he say here in verse 6? He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Same phrase. First he wonders and he pleads with God to hear it. And then he says, God has heard. Blessed be God, because he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. And now he exalts in the Lord as his strength and his shield. Verse 7. We're going to talk about a shield in the armor of God later on in Ephesians 6 in the coming weeks. God was his shield against his enemies. God was his strength. Not his own strength. God was his strength. The Lord was his strength against his enemies. Is the Lord your strength and your shield? Or are you trying to shield yourself and strengthen yourself on your own against the enemies uh, that you face in this life, against the difficulties you face in this life? If the Lord is your strength and your shield, then in Jesus Christ you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, and David would have us know that you know, this isn't just for him. David's not just writing this psalm so that we can know God helped David. That God was David's strength. That God was David's shield. We might think, well, of course, he's the king. I'm just some little nobody. Why would God care about me in the same way? But in verses 8 and 9, he tells us that the Lord was not only his strength, uh, as if it was just for the king, but also what? The Lord is the strength, same word, the strength of what? Of his people. Not just the king, of his people. He's the strength of... Of his people, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. The, the word anointed there is the same word that we use, it's often translated as Messiah. You know, and in saying this, King David is a type of the son of David, King Jesus, who was to come, his greater son and greater king, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And David ends the psalm in verse 9 by once again putting the words of prayer into our mouths, teaching us how to pray and to praise. He says, Oh, save your people. And bless your heritage or your inheritance. Be their shepherd or shepherd them. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. David, again, doesn't just pray this for himself. 
He includes all the people of God in his prayers and in his, his example there. He doesn't just pray for himself. He prays for all of the people of God. And we should pray the same as well. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord is our shepherd, as Psalm 23 also says. And we are his inheritance. And he will surely save and bless. And he will carry us as his people. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. That even when it sometimes feels as if you have turned a deaf ear and we have to wait long or at least long to us for an answer for you to answer from heaven. And that sometimes it seems as if you're being silent, yet you promise us you hear and you answer and you don't ever leave us or forsake us and you're with us always even to the end of the age. Give us grace to learn from this psalm and others like it how we should pray, how we should pray and not give up, that we can know that we are not abandoned by you, even though sometimes it feels as if we have been. Give us grace to to pray to you, to pray for your mercy and help, to pray even for your justice in trust and in faith, knowing that we can also praise you because you have heard our pleas for mercy, especially in Jesus Christ our Lord and his work on our behalf. We pray all these things for his glory. Amen.